If you come to street and you buy a cup of coffee, you know, you're not just getting caffeine, you're creating a cup of belonging for a young person who, who, you know, has come from a situation you wouldn't have ever imagined. So for me, if I'm most proud of one thing in this last decade, we've used caffeine as the gateway drug to belonging. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. With the uncertainty of how our society will emerge from the impact of the pandemic, one thing that has been apparent is the rise of homelessness. Probably the least talked about in that is youth homelessness. In a world where many of us are wondering what the immediate future may hold, what impact is that having on disillusioned and disadvantaged youth with no support network? Rebecca Scott is the co-founder and CEO of Street Cafe. Rebecca, how are you going? I'm great, thank you. We've got lots to talk about. You you created Street um, with some other people um, quite some time ago where you offer disadvantaged youth a supported pathway. Can you start by telling us about Street? Sure. As it turns out, we were supposed to have our 10th birthday the first weekend of the uh, Melbourne lockdown. So we still haven't, we've turned 10, but we haven't actually celebrated our 10th birthday. So yeah, we've been going for for a decade now. And and really we started Street uh, originally out of frustration, just that thought that you know, a kid in Australia who was coming from, you know, a, a family of maybe abuse or poverty or maybe, you know, drug and alcohol addiction. There's a whole bunch of reasons that kids become homeless um, that, you know, where your starting point in this country can also obviously kind of influence the rest of your life. And it just didn't feel like in a land of opportunity and and wealth like ours that that shouldn't be the case, that, that we should have the ability to no matter where a kid starts, to be able to catch them up and take them from, you know, take them into to, to thriving and, and into kind of realising their dreams. So, but, but what we realised, I guess, is, you know, when we stood back and looked at the issue of homelessness, homelessness was often being, you know, looked at as a housing issue rather than a, than a more holistic issue and, and rather than seeing kind of actually there's a whole bunch of issues that have that have created a young person's homelessness actually we've got to work not only in a preventative way but in a really early intervention way and address all of those things that have led to the homelessness not just the housing at the you know which is the symptom at the end um so how do we create the right kind of constellation of supports for a young person and obviously critical part of that is you know employment pathways if you if you're a kid and if you're homeless, you can't afford your rent in a house if you can't get a job. You can't get a job if you can't get training. You can't get training if, if you've got too many issues going on for you. So, of course, we needed to not only kind of get you your, your skilling, but we needed to remove a bunch of the other barriers that were there in the first place. Well, there's quite a few people involved in the beginning of Street. How did you pull those people together and, and how did you get it all started? Oh, look, it sounds kind of harebrained when I think about it now because I was a, I was at the CSIRO working in science, so I had no background whatsoever in either homelessness, youth, 
hospitality or social enterprise. So I, I couldn't have been coming in kind of greener, you know, <laughs> um, to the, to the problem. And my, my co-founder and partner and wife, Kate, uh, she's, she's, um, streets, uh, clinical psychologist and, and chief impact officer. Kate Kate had had you know decades of work also working as a as a clinical psych, but similarly she hadn't been in social enterprise or or specifically in uh, in um, hospitality. So both of us kind of embarked upon this journey together, and I'm, I'm kind of glad in one sense we didn't know what what we were kind of embarking upon because we probably wouldn't have started the journey if we'd known all the things that we didn't know. But I think it was really it, it really was that driving sense that you know hey this is a complex problem and we need to solve we need to think about a, you know an holistic solution to a complex problem and really where we were you know we were living in um Canberra at the time and we realized that probably Canberra wasn't big enough to build the kind of organization that we thought was needed so we we were umming and ahhing you know do we go to Sydney and in actual fact Sydney was going to be our first place to go and build street because I'm from New South Wales originally and Kate's from Sydney and so we thought you know go go back home to where our families were and then Actually, we realised that the, the you know that Melbourne was very much the beating heart and the you know the capital city for social enterprise in Australia. Go where there's more people doing this stuff, so you can learn from them. So, really, you know, it feels like Street has been this enormous group hug from all of these social entrepreneurs and social innovators who really wrapped their arms around us when we arrived as you know, two young women with a tiny little baby, you know, with all of our life packed into a back of a shitty old Corolla going, right, we're here, we're going to start building this thing. And oh my God, I mean, what a, you know, with, with, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed in a big city. Um, and then we've just sprinted like hell for the last decade to try and build but you know just to give you a sense of where we're up to now you know we've built 11 you know hospitality social enterprises we've worked really intensively with over 500 kids and and another 1500 kids in our in our outreach program so you know we've 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 learned some stuff um we've we've failed at a bunch of stuff as well but but we've also got some really you know we've learned some really exciting stuff along that decade you um you found a problem and you you know went out to sort of solve it in a way or alleviate or at least shine a light on it as well. What What is the problem that you see with homelessness in Australia? What sort of numbers are we talking about and what's the impact? Look, certainly across Australia we've got, um, you know, more than 112,000 now. I think the number is oh, – that's pre that was pre-COVID um, as well uh, – 112,000 homeless in Australia. So just to give you a sense, that's, you know, that's more than the, the MCG full of, full of people. So it's a lot of people. Part of the challenge is that we, when we think about homelessness as a community, you know, most of us probably, you know, if we say that word, probably what pops into our mind is um, a dishevelled older man uh, who's got an alcoholic problem sleeping rough in a park. They're, they're often the kind of images that come into our mind, whereas actually the majority of people, you know, that are that are homeless in Australia are children, children and and their and mothers. So we've got a really disproportionate number of 
um, you know, mothers, for example, fleeing domestic violence with their children. There's a there's a lot of you know the majority of homelessness is invisible to us. It's the you know it's the mums and kids you know that are sleeping in their van. It's the people couch surfing. It's it's all of that stuff that we don't see. So we're not seeing we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg because we're only seeing rough sleepers. We're not seeing actually the the enormous iceberg that's sitting beneath that that's often invisible to us, and and sadly also you know where the real growth in in homelessness numbers has been you know most recently across the last number of years is is uh, older women so we're rapidly seeing the rise of you know older women who you know may have you know been divorced from their husbands or fleeing domestic violence don't because they have often been doing you know mothering duties and haven't been in the workforce getting superannuation you know they will have lost a lot of they won't have the same you know superannuation you know that they that their husbands may have had so they're a really vulnerable group. So so within, I guess what I'm saying is within that kind of cohort of homelessness, when you start to break it down, there's a there's a whole heap of sub-cohorts in there and women and children, um, you know, are, are right at the top of that list. You mentioned that you've got, you've created 11 hospitality um, businesses in the last decade. Can you give us an idea of, of how they work and what opportunities are given to those in need? Yeah, look, originally we started out just with a couple of food carts and um, we we evolved very quickly, I guess, to, to move into cafes. And so now we have a, a whole heap of mainly all inner city cafes, well, all inner city cafes. Um, and we've got a bigger footprint than people would probably know because some of our cafes aren't visible. So, for example, we run the ANZ Cafe, we run the AMP Cafe, um, so we're often embedded inside other corporates where we'll be running their cafe, but um, you know you won't see our name on, on the ground floor when you walk in. But but we're the ones that are the, you know inside those organisations. The way it works, and then we've got a catering company, a coffee roastery, and an artisan bakery as well. The way it works for a young person. So if I think about it from their perspective. Um, you normally come to street for kind of internally at street for six months and then you then you're with our partner organizations for an additional six months so for your first six months you know the way you would come to street in the first place is you're normally going to be referred by uh, an agency that you'll you know that you will have turned to for help now that might be a um, a mental health uh, organization it might be a homelessness service it might be a prison uh, might be um, might be a ethnic and multicultural organization so young people are normally sent to us by agencies and because normally because those agencies might have might have helped with a little bit of the problem but they can't you know they can't do the training and employment pathway stuff themselves when you arrive with us, what we do is we do a um, so so in addition to you know that team of amazing you know obviously I've got lots of you know chefs and baristas and bakers and all of those hospo types of people, but embedded in that team are also psychologists and youth workers and social workers and and our beautiful therapy dog magic. So when you arrive at Street as a young person, what we're doing is that that. Um, that youth team with all of those kind of allied health professionals they're doing an assessment of right you know 
where are you, you know where are you coming from what are the major issues we've got to work with where you know what are your dreams for the future where do you want to be and, and what do we you know what do we need to to sort out for you to reach those dreams and then so if a young person you know if a young person uh, X comes in and needs specific help around you know the constellation of their issues might be you know drug and alcohol and mental health and homelessness well then you know we're we're linking them in if they don't already have those services attached to them we're linking them into those specialist services um uh you know for another young person it might be they're they're in prison and they're coming to us on day release and so we're working a lot within you know juvenile justice and their prison workers so each young person they get a very even though they come in as a group so they might come in as a group of you know 12 to 16 kids at a time so they come in as a class but we're working um you know very individually with them on on the specific things that we need to to kind of help them with so they've got a kind of personal plan for that 6 months and so the way it works across a week, you know, say like on a Monday, you might be working with the, you know, the the well health and wellbeing team, you know, to to on those personal issues that are there. Uh, one day a week, you might be uh, you're at TAFE getting your qualifications, so you're getting hospitality qualifications certificate too. And then the other days a week, you're at work, so you're you might be working in our cafe, you might be working in our catering company and it's all real work you know it's but the things that you're learning at TAFE that week you will now be putting into practice in the businesses and what we would do is every five weeks we would rotate you to another business so you get a different bunch of skills so if you're in a cafe obviously in a cafe you're going to get customer service sort of skills whereas if you're in a production kitchen you're not going to be customer facing you're going to get a different set of skills so what we want is we're really giving you a whole range of general skills so across that six months you really get a sense of what you're great at what you love you know where you might want to go next what kind of environment and we don't care less whether or not you want to be in hospo you know longer term we just know hospitality is a really good stepping stone job that it, you know, if it, the the kind of skills that you get in hospitality are really transferable into other industries. So, if we know, hey, you want to be, you know, you want to be in retail, well, actually, we we can give you a load of customer service experience, and we build your journey to make sure that then your journey goes in the direction that you want it to go in. But to be honest, most kids when they come to us, they probably have less idea about where they want to be longer term. They just don't, you know, often it's survival. They just need to be able to put, they need to be able to, you know, get a wage so they can eat or get a wage so they can get their kids back, you know, out of foster care or or stay clean, you know, you know, stay off drugs and, and be supporting themselves. So often at those early, you know, those early to be honest probably probably the first three or four years for a kid once they come to us it's really about just survival whereas you know the lovely thing is a decade on now you can see you know those 500 graduates they've gone into all different directions at the moment we've got kids studying PhDs in English literature at uni we've got kids that are youth workers kids that are childcare workers but they all started off in hospo you mentioned there's around 112,000 homeless in Australia at the moment that we know of, and there's also a rise in older uh, women um, homelessness as well. How have you seen the last six or seven months, given the uh, impact of the pandemic, has been so swift and brutal to so many? 
Um, look, I, th I think it's been a very, very mixed time. So if I think about it personally from Street's perspective, um, one of the absolutely distressing things was that obviously, you know, running hospitality social enterprises, we had to close the doors of all of our cafes, you know, six months ago. So what that meant is all of that training, you know, training that young people was, was doing, we had to close all of our programs. We couldn't have all those young people coming into street because our businesses were all closed. So many of the community service organisations who would have, you know, would have had their clients and their, you know, cohorts kind of coming into their agencies were now all being you know, having to pivot and, and do all of that by phone or do that by, um, you know, video conference. And so our, our, the way we deliver our services has been highly disrupted through this time. Um, what it's also meant is that um, often, often, as you would probably understand, you know, young people might be coming to us um, often, for example, because they come from families where there's a lot of family violence. Now, if you're, say, if you're in lockdown and you're in that family and you're now, you know, you, you now have nowhere to go, you know, to, to kind of escape that, we know, and we've also been seeing that in the, the statistics kind of nationally, that the family violence hotlines have absolutely been overwhelmed with calls from, from yeah, families that are really doing it tough. So what we know is for many of the young people that were at street who might have been very precariously at home, um, and they they were you know they they were escaping family violence. They're back in those families that are that are really often very very toxic for them. What were um, but on the flip side, you know, if you're what you probably would have seen in Melbourne is the city made a real commitment that all of those rough sleepers would be housed in would be housed in hotels. So it's been about the first time, well, I think the first time probably ever that, you know, in the decade that I've been living in Melbourne, it's the first time ever that you would have been walking down any of our streets and you wouldn't have seen rough sleepers. So, the, you know, what we've seen is parts of the homelessness system, you know, those rough sleepers will have been more cared for and have more stable accommodation and be safer than they will have ever been probably in their lives through this pandemic but then those others who may have been in you know rooming houses or boarding houses in and, and that kind of highly unsafe sort of um you know housing situation are going to be way worse because they're locked down in with their perpetrators they're locked down in those unsafe environments so i don't think there's there's not a one size fits all answer to that it, it's highly dependent on kind of where you're sitting in the system. But the one thing that we do know is that there's more pressure on the system. So we know the second that you start to send large, large numbers of people into unemployment, of course your homelessness numbers are going to go up. Is If you've got, you know, large numbers of families defaulting on their mortgages and, and now, you know, don't or can't pay their rent, of course, you know, the homelessness system, you know, and public housing is what, what gets put under strain. And I know, you know, from, from probably listening to the same media reports as you've been, you know, we're, we're hearing all of the state governments um, really talking about the strain that's being put on, on, you know, public housing because there's just not enough beds there 
to to be able to service all of those people that are that are now under mortgage stress or have already lost their houses because they can't pay their rent because they've lost their their job. So so I think you know I think we're in for you know you know decades potentially of of you know incredible um pressure placed on our homelessness services and and you would you would fully expect that we will see a, a big spike in homelessness numbers the same as we normally would if there's a recession you mentioned a bit earlier and everyone in this series has talked about the impact of the pandemic on the hospitality sector and the the core of your business is to help those that are in need but it's also a hospitality business what's been the impact on the venues that you have um, given the lockdown? Oh, look, most of our venues closed within weeks. So, you know, particularly if, I, if I'm thinking about those corporate cafes that we, we ran, you know, all those corporates closed their doors and all their staff started working from home. So, you know, we, we most of our businesses closed very, very early. Um, we've got a couple of businesses. Uh, so so our, of our 11 businesses, only three are operational. So it's it's very, very light on. Um, so sadly, yeah, we, you know, we, we've had loads of people sitting on JobKeeper and, and kind of surviving like, you know, any of those hospitality organisations use at the moment with their doors closed. Having said that, you know, the silver lining, I guess. So, so, so if I talk about kind of business as usual, business as usual is in tatters around our, you know, around my ankles. Um, but having said that, one of the really joyous things to come out of this pandemic has been um, the work that we've been doing with our social enterprise peers in the food relief um, kind of area. And I think what, you know, as as the pandemic really started to hit, uh, you know, it was kind of obvious that the food relief system was going to have all this extra strain put on it. And the food relief agencies were really going to be struggling because, you know, if you look at any of those agencies, most of them rely heavily on volunteers. Often those volunteers are um, retirees. And if all of a sudden we've got people who can't volunteer and often an older cohort that, you know, that's at home isolating, you know, because they're older and more compromised, immune compromised potentially. Um, what, it, what it also meant is that... Um, uh, a lot of the a lot of the services couldn't be delivered the same way. So often food relief, you know, will you know it might be a homelessness agency or a community organisation that would have the fair share van rock up and provide them with thousands and thousands of meals, and those meals would all be delivered by the community organisation to you know to their clients. Well, if all the clients aren't coming into those community organisations, and now you've got people kind of stuck at home but are food insecure how do you get all those meals out to those people with a totally different distribution model so what we've really done I guess is um, started hustling a whole heap of you know other social enterprises you know food social enterprises like ourselves to start to collaborate together so you know we've collectively now made over 120,000 ready-made meals that have gone to particularly multicultural communities We've made something like 20,000 fresh produce boxes that have gone out to, to different um, communities. So we've been really busy 
but just busy, you know, providing food to a totally different cohort than we would normally work with. So I've still got, you know, my kitchens are still open and we're still churning out amazing meals, but none of those meals are being sold. Um, those, those meals are normally being funded through philanthropy that is then going out to you know high needs groups that need it so so we haven't been we haven't been twiddling our thumbs or you know spending the the pandemic watching netflix uh, we've been busy but a very different type of busy but i think one of the lovely things is that you know because we're all food social enterprises who you know our dna is using food to do good and and create kind of social change um, we're just doing that in a really different way. So even though our young people aren't in training, we're still very much creating social impact. Hospitality venues are renowned for low margins and at a time like this, what you do is more vital than ever for people in need. How, how are you feeling about the future of the model that you have that's part hospitality and part helping people that need it most in society? Look, that's a really good question because I think often people don't realise how low margin hospitality is. They might see a busy cafe and go, oh, my God, you know, those guys must be raking in money. And so, so you know, even a traditional cafe is going to be operating on a wafer-thin margin. Now, that's before you add psychologists and youth workers and social workers and absolutely unemployed staff, um, unemployable staff into the mix so if you think about my business model and it sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud but my my business model really says I go out and say my so I'm going to put my job ad out for my hospitality you know hospitality employees and the business model said my job ad would say if you've got a, if you're a homeless young person, you've got a drug and alcohol addiction issue, you've just come from prison, uh, you've got severe mental health issues, and you are absolutely unemployable, you are our perfect employee. And then what we do is embed you in the heart of our business. So you know, obviously, if that's your business model that you're going to take unemployable people and and put them in the heart of your business, you're gonna it's going to be more expensive. Not only are you going to have people that are more, you know, that aren't skilled and, and need, you know, that are more unproductive, so I've got way lower levels of productivity, but I also need a way higher number of highly skilled staff and trainee, uh, trainers and all of that support function in over and above that. So when when we talk about HOSPO, you know, say it's a 5%, five, 5%, you know, profit margin industry, I know that I bring 20% of extra operating overhead to do the social stuff in our business. So you have a model, you know, you, you essentially have a recipe for going very, very bankrupt um, when you're in a small margin industry and you're trying to load on all of this extra social impact that you're doing. So the only way that our model stacks up and the reason why we've got 11 businesses is because what we've done is we've built a portfolio of businesses and we couldn't survive if we only did cafes. You know, cafes are too small margin to, to be able to be only a cafe social enterprise model. There's a reason why we've got catering in there. Catering is way better margins than cafes. So what we've got, I guess, in the totality of our business model uh, or of our portfolio, I guess, um, in pre-pandemic, we were 90% self-funded through our portfolio. 
So what that means is, you know, we, we were we were hardly grant reliant. We were getting to a point where we were, you know, really standing on our own feet and doing, you know, the the business profits were were funding all of that extra kind of social stuff that we were doing. But um, I think it gets that much more complicated, you know, post pandemic, um, where where really, um, yeah, post pandemic, you know, Hospo is going to be. Um, really not working kind of well at all. And I think we're going to probably look like a pretty different organisation at the other end. I think I, I would be surprised if some of our businesses, you know, didn't make it all the way through. Having said that, I think we're going to end up looking quite different and I think we'll move, we'll kind of go sideways also into urban agriculture. So I think we'll go probably more into food production and food growing and create new training and employment pathways for young people into urban agriculture. So we are, we also become our farm, we, we become the farmers as well as the, you know, the food growers. And I think that's a, so we're just starting that work now. We've got a new uh, garden, market garden that we're establishing across at Collingwood Children's Farm. Uh, we've got our first horticulturalists that are working across there getting ready now for our first young people to, to come into training in horticulture. So I think, you know, coming into this new year, we'll be not just a hospitality organisation but also a horticulture organisation and going to start to be probably, um, yeah, we're going to look quite different. And I think we'll probably end up with what will over time be a almost like a distributed urban farm where we might have a, you know, whereas we might have been running the cafe at ANZ, you know, we might in the future also be running a, an olive orchard on top of their rooftop at the same time as well as their cafe. So we end up with this really building actually food system. So rather than just being, you know, in food service, organ, you know, food service organisation, we're actually a food system organisation. Melbourne had the second lockdown and the numbers are getting lower and lower and it looks like heading to closer towards opening up society again. What What's it feel like being in Melbourne at the moment? How, how have you been in this period? Oh, look, it would be fair to say that we're all going a bit stir crazy. <laughs> um, from a, you know, from a personal perspective, um, I've been doing an enormous amount of kind of backyard growing, you know, with with my partner Kate and our son Will. So so our backyard garden, you know, is looking incredibly healthy. So we've been growing, doing our own urban farming activity. So we're we're growing about a third of our food at the moment in the backyard in a tiny, tiny little inner city, you know, um, house. So we haven't got a we haven't got a big farming kind of spot at all. It's 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 a tiny backyard. But so we've been doing loads of kind of um staying sane through our own gardening activity. But I um I I there's such a sense of um excitement. So even though our businesses are it's going to be a long long road out, you know, it's going to be very slow for us to kind of claw our way back out of the pandemic from a business sense um I feel like that combination between you know it's starting to get warm our biggest site um our big production site is is a site in Collingwood and it's just beautiful and it's got these beautiful garden and so um the team over there have been getting so excited about 
you know, when you come to as a customer to street, hopefully only a couple of weeks away when we're out of lockdown, you know, you'll be able to come out and you'll be sitting in our garden to have your meal. And yes, there'll be far less people there because it's all socially distanced, of course. But I think we're we're getting very creative about how to use the space. The other thing we've been doing is playing a lot and we've been developing a lot of different types of food products. So we've just at the moment just launching our new um, picnic hamper range. So essentially you would come to street, you would come through and you would, you know, you would walk through, you would have pre, pre-ordered your picnic hamper and then what we're giving you is everything you need to go and have a beautiful meal in the park with, you know, with family and friends. So we're, you're eating our food but it's, um, but it's not in our locations because we, we're really limited in the number of people we'll be able to seat. So some of that stuff um, we've been developing throughout the pandemic and so we've done a lot of home delivery, huge numbers of meals we've been delivering to customers at home, doing a lot of um, – the other thing we've been doing, a lot, you know, thousands of, we've been um, – a lot of the corporates that we, you know, that we're normally working with and delivering, you know, delivering kind of coffee to every day because they've got so many staff that are that are working from home now what they've been doing is sending uh, beautiful care packages and ham- food hampers to their teams that we've been making so they might say hey uh, can we have a thousand uh, or 500 gift hampers of beautiful delicious food from you for you know for all of our teams and we'll then have that delivered to a home. So it might have beautiful, freshly roasted coffee from our roastery, beautiful, fresh loaves of artisan bread, um, some beautiful marmalade that we may have made. So it'll be like a you know a beautiful group hug from your workplace and all of that delicious food. But but it's now as you know a care package for home. So we are incredibly grateful for those corporates that have you know, continue to, to contract our goods and services, but in a very different way than we normally would. So, so if I think about how many, you know, how many kilometres we will have racked up, you know, our van drivers delivering all of those care packages all around, you know, Melbourne, um, and some of those actually have been going into state. So we're at the moment, we're making a whole heap of care packages for Westpac staff all around the country, so they're sending out care packages to masses of staff and they've ordered – so Sydney has ordered masses amounts of our, of our food, that, um, you know, longer shelf life product. So it might be jams or chutneys or preserves or coffee, things that have a long shelf life, all to put in their care packages for their teams um, and so we've been, you know, our kitchens have been absolutely flat out making all that longer shelf life product that all then get shipped to Sydney that they then make into masses of hampers that go out across the country. So, so certainly, you know, once again, we, we, we've kind of needed to really, um, really show, you know, and that's been us actively kind of going out to those corporates saying, Hey, by the way, we've got some other products and services on offer here and them going fantastic. Yes, we'll have 500 of them. Thanks. So, yeah, it's you know our kitchens are being flat out, but geez, it's been you know very different kind of to you know normally we've got you know on any given week we'd be creating so many a la carte meals and you'd be coming in and you'd be sitting in a you know in a beautiful cafe or restaurant, 
Uh, there's been none of that, but loads of amazing food going out, you know, home delivery or hampers. Or, or obviously those ready-made meals, all those, you know, ready-made meals for the food relief system. You've had a lot of graduates from your program. Is there one or two graduate stories that stand out to you? Oh, it's like asking me who's my favourite children. Um, there are so many unbelievable stories. And I, um, the amazing thing that happened, uh, and it was, it was one of the most precious things that has happened to me in this last decade. So I, at the beginning of the interview, I talked about the fact that we were supposed to have our 10th birthday um, the first weekend of lockdown, so we never actually got to have our birthday. The thing that did happen, which was just unbelievable, um, about three weeks before the pandemic happened, um, for the first time we brought all of the young people across all the years back together for a celebration. Wow. And so there were kids that I hadn't seen for nine years. Um, and I – and oh, my God. God, it was just I. The second the first kid walked in the door, uh, I can't shouldn't call them kids because they're very much you know amazing young men and women and young trans people. Um, and when those first um, young men and women walked in the door, I just burst into tears because there were kids, you know, there were young people there that you know I was so relieved that they was still alive. You know, they come to us in such a terrible, terrible state that, you know, you lie awake in the middle of the night and think, I wonder what happened to that kid. God, I hope, you know, they manage, you know, we, they might have come to us with years, for example, with a drug, you know, drug addiction. Um, you know, they managed to stay clean in the time that they were with us. You know that they were in a job, you know, you that they were in a, you know, you had you had a year of contact with them following the program. Um, they might have dropped in and out, you know, they might have dropped in kind of every couple of years and said hi. But there were so many kids that just, you know, moved into state that we didn't hear from. And so what we did is for months try and track down um, as many of those 500 young people as we could find and then invite them back. And it's, it was just so incredible to see them after all of this time. And, and naturally, you know, many of them are now parents. Um, some of the things that were really quite extraordinary, many of those young people will would have been taken because they came from kind of families of poverty and violence and often kind of very intergenerational um, issues. Many of the young people who come to street would have been taken off their families when they were very young themselves. So, so really, you know, they started life behind the eight ball as you know as little babies, and and they would have been they would have spent a lot of time in the foster care system themselves but this is the but they will now have children this is the first generation that haven't been taken off their families so this is the first generation where where the the poverty stops and that that has been unbelievable i think about one young woman who came i know she was the fourth generation of family members she was the first young person in that family to have a job in four generations. Uh, she has she was our first, she was a graduate in our very first class. She got she went on to do her full apprenticeship in uh, and she's been working as a chef um, for for well for the last nine well eight years, been working as a chef. She's traveled the world as a chef working overseas, uh, was working in London, you know, traveled all around the place. Um, 
and but you know you you take you know those kind of stories where for us it might not seem that remarkable that a you know a young person's got a job and they you know they've got a chef apprenticeship but if you know the backstory of that young person and know this is the first young person in four generations that's had a had a job uh and the first you know the first kids that have now kept their own children you know they the, they haven't had their own children taken off them by DHHS and they and they've got stable homes and 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 they've got you know they're not in homelessness services themselves um i think about the young young trans person who came out at street um had the had the bravery to come out as a trans person at street um, had been in the closet before that, but now studying, you know, a PhD in English literature at Monash University. You know, a young person who'd been sleeping rough, and I remember one of the first conversations that I had with them um, was them describing the best way to to break into a into a dumpster and how you dumpster dive, and the way you pick the lock, the way you because all those locks, you know, the big food premises normally have, you know. Um, bins that are all locked at night but they told me you know how how you undo the lock and how you pick the lock and they drew me a picture of how you pick the lock of a of you know a great big dumpster to be able to get in and get your food at night um and yeah they drew me this cartoon but you know this is a young person who has now been partnered for years um went uh, left street to become a Ausland interpreter because really wanted to work very much kind of, you know, supporting communities where, where they were seeing um, there were some real issues and then ended up, you know, saying, actually, I want to do a PhD in, in English literature, going off to uni and just to see them happy and healthy and proud of themselves and their gender identity stuff that was also complex and raw back then in the coming out process was also new, you know, feeling proud of themselves stable and in a loving environment you know loving partnership and had been for for years um and when I still remember that night you know saying what is it you know why why did street matter to you and they said street was the first place that I saw loving relationships and I thought for the first time as a young queer that that I could have a loving relationship and someone might love me one day too and so, you know, for them, the biggest thing to come out of street was actually getting a sense of this is what healthy relationships looks like. You know, it wasn't, you know, yes, we helped them with their housing stability, but for them it was it was being able to model what a future might look like for them. For other young people, when I said to them, why did street matter to them? Once again, the answer wasn't normally you gave, you know, you sorted me with a house. It was things like this was the first place where I felt like I could be me. Or this was the first place I felt included and I belonged. And so what came out again and again and again throughout that night um, was the thing that was most precious to those young people was a sense of connectedness and belonging. And, and that was often for them, you know, that, that was a bigger hole in their lives than actually all of the other stuff that had been, you know, that, that was in the way and the barriers that are there. It was that sense of of. I belong in my community and I matter. And that's, yeah, that's a pretty precious thing, you know. Um, I, I, you can't, you know, that that makes for a pretty special cup of coffee. If you come to street and you buy a cup of coffee, 
you know, you're not just getting an amazing, you know, you're not just getting caffeine, you're creating a cup of belonging for a young person who, who, you know, has come from a situation you wouldn't have ever imagined. So for me, if I'm most proud of one thing in this last decade, we've used caffeine as the gateway drug to belonging. Well, Rebecca, what you and Kate have created is absolutely extraordinary and we're honoured to have you on Deep in the Weeds. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation. Really, yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.